Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, what is the sound that lulls you to sleep? I know it's not your cats. The lamentations of my enemies. I'm a fan of having a fan. Also, uh, West Wing episodes, which, depending, depending on how you interpret it, could be the lamentations of my enemies, since... Those thing, those up, those uh, that show is basically like Democrat porn, because uh, the Republicans <laughs> actually lose sometimes in those epi- in those shows. So we can we can all dream, <sighs> right? All right. So tonight begins our marathon through the I've called it a triptych in like our planning doc, but it's really four episodes. What what's the what's the word for uh, a triptych but four? A quadrology. Insurrection quadrology. I'm Googling this now. Triptych before a quadriptic. Quadriptic? That's an yeah. awful word. That word should be ashamed. It sounds vaguely dirty to me. <laughs> I mean, and not just because it has dick in it. So for our quadriptic, uh, we are we're splitting this up into two, but this is sort of the the midway point of what was intended for the show, though network stuff. Uh, but anyways, we are covering two episodes tonight. These are Messages from Earth and Point of No Return. Ooh, we're covering a season name episode. Always good stuff. It's it's so oh. weird that they named a whole season Messages from Earth. <laughs> that feels like it should have been a Voyager episode. I'm pretty sure it was. Like one of the last, like season five or after where they get like, they get to start sending data packets back to the Alpha Quadrant. Anyways, we're not talking about that here. We are talking about Season 3, Episode 8, Messages from Earth, written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Mike Vehar. We start off with a fun little scene where everyone is bitching about the food, where apparently breakfast on B5 is blue gogurt. Ivanova is given a lovely present, breakfast, bought from Marcus, bacon and eggs, which is a thank you in return for helping Marcus get an identicart. We then cut to Marcus, who kicks the butt of several people while trying to help a woman escape. The woman is taken to med lab where she's unconscious. Marcus explains that the men attacking her wanted her for something she was going to do. And that she had uh, people who were chasing her. Bad people. Garibaldi visits Jakar in jail, and the latter has been using his time to meditate and sing. Jakar asks if Garibaldi has been reading the Book of Jaquad. Garibaldi replies that... What he can understand has been enlightening, though he wishes there was a translation. Jakar scolds him and says that the Book of Jaquan must be read in the original Narn. Jakar also reflects that his time in prison has helped him focus, and he has been writing about his life while behind bars. When Garibaldi asks to see his writing, Jakar only wishes to reveal it when it is done. Big mood, buddy. Nobody is allowed to read your first draft. Uh, the woman in Medlab awakes, and Garibaldi relates a story of a ship found in an excavation on Mars. Dr. Mary Kirkish, a member of Interplanetary Expeditions, is there to corroborate that story. 
and a lot of people want her dead for that. Delenn and the staff speak with Kirkish, who reveals that the ship that they found was a shadow vessel, and it was excavated out on Mars. Um, she tells the story of a worker who accidentally touched the ship and was instantly killed. The team was then ordered to fall back, but before Earth could get too far, another shadow vessel came and carved it out of the rock to rescue it. But things have gotten worse. Another vessel has been found on Ganymede, and this time they're going to try to take it back to Earth. Meanwhile, a fuckmon security officer reminds Zach Yellen to attend a night watch meeting. And displays a little bit of a god complex. He won't be important, I'm sure. Yeah. Meanwhile, Sheridan Delenn speak alone in a viewing dome, where Delenn informs him everything has been arranged, asking if he wants to go through with this. When Sheridan reconvenes the staff, he declares that he cannot allow Clark to get control of a shadow ship. Delenn and him will take the White Star into Earth space and destroy it. Sheridan is leading his uniform, identity card, and anything that could lead back to him on the station. With a suitable alibi, they take a shuttle to the White Star and then depart for Earth. On the station, the Night Watch security officer distributes some disturbing information from home. Earth has found many traitors, from senators, news agents, even members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. All the accusations against the President are a prelude to an alien invasion. Night Watch is planning mass arrests. But as the question of loyalty comes up, a Night Watch officer asks, if they know where the captain is. Meanwhile, on the White Star, Lanier dismisses Sheridan from the bridge because it is obvious that he needs some sleep. As Sheridan has issues with the angled beds of the Minbari, Delenn and Sheridan talk, and Delenn helps John fall asleep with some very sweet sweets. We will talk about this after the summary, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Back in Sheridan's office, Marcus is trying to give a briefing to Ivanova, but she is distracted. She blows at him, for Sheridan's suicide mission, and she needs somewhere to vent. The White Star comes out of hyperspace, where they are able to pick up. Earth is trying to have a pilot bond with the Shadow Vessel. They try to race to Ganymede, but they are too late. The ship is awake. The bonding of the ship and the pilot went badly, and the Shadow Vessel is acting without purpose or thought. Sheridan orders them in and tries to engage the vessel. Sheridan gets the ship's attention and takes the White Star to Jupiter's atmosphere. Their goal is to lure the ship into the gravity well and trap it. The maneuver succeeds, with the White Star barely surviving. However, there is one more obstacle. The EAS Agamemnon, Sheridan's old ship, which is in orbit. John refuses to return fire at at his old command and considers his options. Their choices are to fight or surrender. But Sheridan decides to take a third option. Delenn suggests opening a jump gate in Jupiter's atmosphere, which will cause an explosion. They decide to fake a surrender to escape and jump out of the high levels of the atmosphere, barely escaping. John remarks that one way or another, he's going to be back to Earth someday to finish this. With everybody home safe now, ISN has spun the story as an alien attack on the research station on Ganymede, with Clark using it to tighten security. The Night Watch thug tries to get Alan to snitch on where the captain is, but Alan doesn't know anything. In Ivanova's quarters, Marcus tries to cheer her up with a very cute poster, but they are interrupted by a news item. Earth is under martial law. Da da da! da, da, da. So this is a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I have to say, I'm a little offended that you left out, like, everything good in this episode. I'm, in your I'm summary? doing it because I just wanted to get through the I wanted to get through the plot so we could talk about the good stuff. I think that really outlines for me the ex, the like 
the problem with this episode. And that is that uh, the plot of this episode is very dramatic and, and shit's happening. And I could fucking care less uh, because all of the like everything good in this episode is fucking bits. Jakar in prison is the richest content in this episode. Oh, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. He is in prison. And when Garibaldi comes to visit him, he leads with the other prisoners have taken a petition about your singing. Are they for or against? And he <laughs> so says cool. against. And Jakar's laughter, which is in which this is scene, we know that we know that's a crime because Jakar's a great singer. Yeah, we, yeah, we the, hear him the, singing like opera in like a, two episodes later, and it is nowhere as good. I think I think Jakar's a better folk and pop singer than he is like a classically trained vocalist. I don't care. I take any of it. I would listen to Jakar sing. I don't know, like pop Christmas tunes or whatever. Uh, Centauri opera. I'm into all of it, but I think it's. What I love about this scene is the lightness in Jakar in this scene. Yeah. Compared to the last time we saw him where he was literally, I, I think I described him as like Jakar, the, the insurgent leader, like that in, in dust to dust, he's like at his lowest point where he's buying like drugs and drugs to fuel his you know, underground drugs to fuel the the insurgency. And then he has this awful vision of his father and he brutalizes Londo and Veer. And then you see him in this and it's just, he's just unburdened by what he experienced in that vision and this new path he has stepped onto. And it's so pure. It's just a delight. And it's, it's like that he's, you without, anything to do he's getting a chance to reflect and sort of sit with himself and rediscover himself yeah mm -hmm. yeah there, there's a lot of him that is just freed up part of that is because he is at least for the moment freed of expectations yeah and he he's got all this time for for self-reflection here which is yeah very good stuff it's very good yeah so he can just he can just you know write his book and and sing uh, but he's not the only one. Uh, like all the other bits in this episode that I love are like the stuff that's going on around the plot. Uh, Ivanova being a crankosaurus and yeah, uh, Sheridan yeah, Delenn, Sheridan and Delenn flirting like mad, and Marcus being just like a big old banana ham. Like, so I want to talk about the Ivanova Marcus stuff because that's like I think that's yeah. my. So we're continuing this thread of Ivanova. We're gonna say we're gonna say being obs we'll say obsessive in her need to be like in control of situations. Yeah, for and sure. that's been stripped from her from the fact that she doesn't get to go on the spaceship to blow stuff up. Like this is sort of like this is her exact thing that she is supposed to do. Like that that is right in her wheelhouse, mm -hmm. but she has to stay home and mind the barn. Yeah. And Marcus recognizes this, and Marcus also wants to be the person who's in the cool spaceship blowing stuff up. But he recognizes that, like, that's just they're not they're not getting to do that. And so the first time is like when they're in Sheridan's office, and 
Marcus just is like realizes that uh, that Ivanova is listening to him. He's like, and yeah, the the these border worlds are really uh, are really screwed because there's a dragon that comes out every thirty days, and I have fifteen ferrets in my trousers. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, buddy. I'm sure you got a pocket trouser. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, we're going there. And then, and then Ivanova like rants like, I don't know where you belong in like the command structure. So in the last scene, Marcus makes a poster. He makes a little arts and crafts poster. It's like, and, like, and there's, and there's my mom and dad and, you know, they don't really relate, but it's a great picture of them. Yeah. Okay. So. In my head, I'm I'm looking at this, and I'm my my head canon is that Marcus learned these skills mapping out like uh, ships, and so he's mm-hmm. just like, well, I've already got the poster board and the string and and like the the glitter paint, so I, I guess I could <laughs> use this to map out like a command structure. It's basically the same thing as ships, except there's less, slightly less. See, I, I sex. I, I I have a head canon that has arisen from here. That arts and crafts is a very important part of ranger training. <laughs> yes. <laughs> please, please write me like 2,000 words depicting the uh, the ranger arts and crafts class. Uh, and I, I really like the Ivanova Marcus content here, not just because of that, but I really like the moment where she just like snaps and rips into him, not because she's being mean to Marcus. I mean, I like that. but it's you know that that it seems like a very human moment that you know she's angry and doesn't really and feels out of control and doesn't really have a reasonable place to focus that anger and so she's focusing it at marcus and yeah i I almost feel like she's she's less focusing it than than marcus is like i can take this hit like yeah i'm okay with that but yeah, your point is excellent. Like Ivanova very much like needs to express this. She's boiling over with her fear and anxiety and frustration. And she's, I mean, has to go somewhere. Yeah, it's like she, she's going to lash out in some way. And it might as well be at Marcus. Yeah. Because he's, you know, why not? Well, I mean, he's willing and uh, yeah. happy to have it more like. So our, our third very wonderful bit is on the white star. Um, oh, the rain. Where? Yeah, yeah. So John needs to sleep, but he cannot because the Bari somehow came up with the idea of angled beds. Okay, I, I have because a, they think I have I have a rant about this. This is the most. Jude, tell us why the Bari sleep on diagonal. They beds. don't. They don't. This is the most horseshit bit of. <laughs> Star Trek, the original series world building, the show has ever done. Like, Star Trek, the original series is full of, like, weird alien species that do dumb things that no species would ever do. Like, we're a species that have inflatable plastic bags for brain cases, and you can see our brain inside, and, like, what species would evolve like that? That's fucking stupid. Like, there is no (laughs) natural selection that, that would do that, because you, like, bump into a door corner, and your head pops, and you're dead. Like... Short of, like, being engineered by some higher race. And yes, I know they've gone there. I watch Next Gen 2. Fuck off. Uh, 
you know, short of like that, what what species end, species ends up that way? The Minbari don't sleep on fucking angled beds. Like it's the dumbest addition to canon. Like what bipedal species can rest like that? You end up like down at down at one end of the bed, curled up like in a weird lump, or you're you're standing there like it's just dumb. It's it's a pointless dumb addition that serves no purpose other than maybe the Mimbari have bad problems with heartburn though. Okay, that's great. They maybe still... they can like maybe they can like cat claw into it and like stabilize themselves. Look, unless they've got like an, an anchor that like extends out of their tailbone, like some sort of a like some sort of stingray stinger. You see, we don't sleep as two humans do. Instead, yeah. we excrete a fluid. Yeah. So yeah. so the Minbari bone crest is just like a burr that sticks into the bat and, and like I mean, keeps them anchored. That makes more like, sense. This than, is just. I, it's just. I just think it's dumb. It's dumb world so building. Funny. And the only. It, I'll tell you why it exists. It's really just there so that they t- the two of them can face each other. I mean, yes, and that's good. That that like visual is good. But no, it's there so that Sheridan can look awkward, and Delenn can come in and, and rescue him. Yes. Also, why why is he trying to sleep on this thing with his leather jacket on? Like of course he's gonna slide down. Yeah. Yeah. His his, like, take his jacket, extremely nineteen nineties leather jacket. That it's, like every dad that jacket for him. you've ever yeah. seen who tried to be a cool dad owned. It's a very like proto Jack O'Neill energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like 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 Bruce Boxelder is like 1,000 times soft, more of a soft boy than Richard Dean Anderson is. But, but, well, you know, it's like it's like the proto-Civy Jack O'Neill look. Yeah. But, yeah, so Sheridan, like, talks about, like, when he, when he was in school, he would, like, he couldn't fall asleep without rain. I love this story so much. It's so fucking, yeah. it's so fucking good. And when he was in college, he he stayed up way too late for studying, for, for cramming for a test. And so he was trying to sleep, but he couldn't. It was like the entrance exam for, for like the military college or something. It was important. Yeah. Yeah. And so his dad goes to the backyard and turns on the hose so that it can. And sprays it up on the roof so that he can hear the rain, which is. And then his dad just stands there all night holding that hose. I'm like that. That was like the that was the point where I'm just like, oh my, it's the perfect story, and it's like so great, and then it's even made ba- that it's the the cap to this is perfect when Delenn asks the computer to make rain noises, and the the other cap to this that I love is that we actually see Sheridan's dad in a couple of episodes. Yeah, um, um and we see them have that fantastic chemistry together. Yeah, we'll talk about that scene next episode. Yeah. But but I, I like that this is laying groundwork for that. Yeah, and you do and get a laying sense, groundwork for their relationship. Yeah, you you really do get a sense in this scene and then in that later scene of the relationship between the two of them, and it really does give you a feel for how share like the relationship there, and it, it, a feel for like why Sheridan, kind of why how why Sheridan came to be the man he is because because of his father. Like you do get a real sense of, uh, that. Some people become the people who they are uh, in rebellion against the people their parents are. And some people become the people they are because that's who they will always be. And they're just a weird genetic explosion that 
it will not be contained by the personas of their families or the generations that they live in. And some people are very much shaped by the generations that they are raised by. And Sheridan very much seems like he's uh, his father's son. You really get that impression. And I really, really like that because I think Sheridan is very much supposed to be that dad energy that uh, he's, it's very humanizing. And I think that's very much the point that, that Sheridan is very much supposed to stand in for the non-toxic masculinity of her. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's really nice to see a, you know, father son relationship that's not toxic in any way that, you know, they, they genuinely care for each other and think fondly of each other. Yeah. And have a good relationship. Yeah. The story is not about his dad, like taking him hunting or, or flying lessons or, or we were, you know, I love Sinclair, but it wasn't about them both being fighter pilots or something like that. It's about his dad standing in the dark all night long, making it sound like rain so his son can sleep well at night. Like, it's just so pure and, like, it's caring. It's an extraordinarily caring recollection. Uh, and it's not nece- it's not the kind of thing you would, a lot of, a lot of depictions of fatherhood are. Yeah, I, I, the the term that I use that I, that I've heard is tender masculinity. Yeah, which good is, way of which, it. which is I think it's a, it's a very good counter to like the idea of toxic masculinity. Yeah. It, it's like that is something that we see. I, I would say we see a lot of in Sheridan, mm-hmm. and that's and that's something they that want to talk about with the when we hit next episode as well. Yeah, so we'll put a pin in that. So, but yeah. Um, like yeah, there's a lot of good just like bits in there. Uh, we get Lanier doing a Scotty impression <laughs> in this episode. Yeah, where if I were holding anything back, I would tell you. Yeah, yeah. As Sinclair, who is just like on the galaxy braid outside the box level of tactics, is like how many how much pressure can the ship hull take? And Lanier's just like the fuck should I know? Yeah. We grew this thing in a box on a one-off. You think there's a fucking instruction manual? You think we had time to put it through a stress test? Like, I'm going to write a paper about this and get published in Weird Religious Military Tactics Monthly. Like, <laughs> I, I do like how it's like, their, their plan is just, sure, the Shatter Ship is bigger than us. Let's just hope gravity works. <laughs> Yeah, they they don't even have that much of a plan. It's Napoleon's plan. They're just going to show up and see what happens. Like, until they get there, which is like Sheridan's, which is like almost always Sheridan's plan. It sort of boggles the mind when it comes to the shadows. Sheridan's plan is almost always like, "Eh, we'll probably die, but let's fucking see what happens. And I think maybe like, maybe that's the secret to his success. Maybe the shadows are like, What's with this guy? He never like. There's no fucking sense to like what this guy's thinking. Like maybe he's just too dumb for the shadows to figure out what he's to, to like figure him out. Uh, uh, Have we talked about the? I want to go back to the breakfast thing at one point. Oh yeah, yeah. I want to talk stuff. about chickens. Okay. Yeah. Because why does the station not have chickens? Because the station should have chickens. Yeah, I, I mean, I get, I get what they're doing with this bit. But I'm right there with you that the idea that they can't have chickens is fucking clown shoes. 
Unless like, there's some weird like pockmara disease that only affects chickens. And so like the second a chicken is exposed to the the air on B5, it like turns into a sociopathic murder machine and grows fangs. <laughs> there's no reason on earth why you shouldn't be able to have chickens. And even then you could keep them in like a murder pen and just collect the eggs. There's no reason why you couldn't keep murder chickens on the station. I don't know. I, and I and just, they provide they provide fertilizer. I, they eat food waste. Yeah. No, I mean... My mother, in her attempt to just replace her children with the animals, now that we have all left the coop, um, has, now has, coop. like, four chickens. Um, so, I, I chickens are already murder machines. They are tiny velociraptors that just happen to canonically have feathers, not just supposedly have feathers. Yep. Well, chickens are weird little bird things. There's, I just, I, I ref, I'm right there with you, Anna. I refuse to accept that you could not get a chicken to live on, on Babylon 5. I just want to imagine a chicken attempting to fly in an O'Neill cylinder because that would go badly for the chicken. You just pick it up and throw maybe, it straight up and see what happens. <laughs> maybe chickens just don't do well in space. <laughs> They're too dumb to understand. They're too dumb to like realize what's going on and they just freak out. All I'm saying is I don't buy that you can't keep a chicken alive on Babylon 5. So either there is a rich, rich vein of story here explaining why this is not possible, or it was just a bit to explain, like, how fucking talented Marcus is because eggs are fragile, in which case, JMS, that's lazy, and you 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 owe us better than that. Maybe, maybe there's just, maybe just big poultry is keeping chickens uh, on Earth only. I, I think it's supposed <laughs> to be like a refrigeration thing that's hard to keep things, like, refrigerated. Yeah, but that's but still that's still lazy. That's still stupid. Because but yeah, I, yeah. If you're unless you're an American, you can keep you can keep eggs out of the counter. Thank you. Yeah. You beat me to it. Only in America. If you've lived anywhere else in the world, you know that eggs actually keep perfectly well unless you've like yeah. chemically scoured the very effective chemical protectants off the outside of the egg. When I, when I last visited my mom, I got sent home with like you know padded bag of eggs and it's like yeah here's a dozen like you know here, here's like a here's like eight of them yeah don't put them in the fridge it's like you could just drive with them all day they're fine I'm like okay yeah no, yes yeah. today i learned and even even in the u.s eggs keep a shockingly long time in the fridge yeah like yeah. way longer than you think they should yeah and long and then longer than that well yeah because they're Eggs are designed to convey protein over time and distance. Like, they're supposed to be a, a carrier for a little hunk of protein. Like, that's what they're supposed to do. Maybe they maybe eggs can't survive orbital departure. I refuse to believe that you can't have a chicken in space. End of conversation. That's, that's, <laughs> I'm drawing a line in the sand. This is, I, lo I love how we've gotten to it. I, I feel like we're, we're on the topic of Marcus being ridiculous here. And I want to point out my favorite ridiculous Mar Marcus thing in this one, which is that he is apparently allergic to the phrase bounty hunter because like Franklin asks him who's after Kirkish. And Marcus is like, Men, men, the type of men who who take money to find people and to capture them and to hurt them or even to kill them. And it's like, Marcus, it's a bounty hunter. Bounty <laughs> hunters are after her. <laughs> two words. Two, two, two. You just talked for 30 seconds. Yeah. Two words. Here's the thing. I absolutely believe that he can't remember the phrase bounty hunter there. 
<laughs> like, oh, it's he, a great, he, he, it's is a great our, he is our our himbo prime for this show. And I absolutely believe that in that moment in his head, he's like, keep talking, keep talking, keep talking, keep talking. <laughs> they won't notice. You don't know what word it is. Uh, I have two things I want to mention about this episode. Okay. Uh, one for a hundred bucks. I, I, I'm, one is an agreement uh, for a hundred bucks. I would not have believed that Amanda tapping wasn't in this episode. I was so sure that I, I looked it up on IMDb. Yeah, yeah, no, this is... The, and uh, that, that first shot where she's at, like, three-quarter profile, she looks identical to Amanda Tapping. Oh, yeah, she's, like, running through down below. I'm like, dang, SG-1 crossover confirmed, fuck. And then, no, I looked it up on IMDb, and it's like, no, she's a completely different person. Yeah, it's Nancy Stafford, who has very little credits that nerddom would recognize, but she's credited in 109 episodes of Matlock, so... Good on her. Okay. Yeah. And also apparently is a meta tapping's clone. Yeah. Uh, the second thing, Garibaldi just drops in with like, oh yeah, by the way, I've seen a shadow ship before. Just throwing that out there. <sighs> I just like how like it. I hate like it's so dumb. This this is why this episode bothers me. It's like all the plot stuff in this episode is fucking stupid. It hinges on this dumb moment. The only part of this episode I like are are the bits and the character moments in this episode. I feel like you could rewrite this episode and just have her introduced and say like, yeah, there's a shadow vessel on Ganymede. You know, 10 years ago, I was on Mars and they did the same thing here. This can't be done. You, you, don't yeah, you can have just have, you can just have the, Marcus have tracked her down or like the Rangers have tracked her down without Garibaldi being involved at all. Yeah, his addition to yeah, this is and pointless. The, and the voiceover is so weird. Yeah. It's completely useless to have his addition here, yeah. except that it makes, like, it's pointless. See, I kind of like the voiceover thing because the footage, like, the, the CGI footage of the shadow vessel hovering in the atmosphere of Mars as it cuts out the other shadow vessel from the rock is extremely good. No, no, no. I'm talking about the, the like, the, the monologue where she's walking through the, the, the corridors oh. and, like, it's, oh it's yeah, all, they're showing off the security. No, it, that's just bad. Yeah, yeah, that's that's bad. <laughs> yeah, like the actual like stuff on Mars is cool. That's like they should have kept that in as like like a uh, a ten years ago like cut back or yeah. something. Like I think there's a way you restructure this episode, and there's it's just more solid. Yeah, and you'd leave more space for the bits. Yeah, no, we... yeah, they don't leave the station till halfway through this episode. Yeah, <laughs> I clocked it because it was. Is it just me or all these episodes super long? Like, I know they're not. They're all the same length. But all these episodes feel bananas long. You're looking at the timeline and you're like, how are we still on the station? We're halfway through this episode and we haven't even fucking left? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, because CGI costs a lot of money. <laughs> and, and so they can't really do long. They can't do those scenes to be longer. Yeah. But speaking of, uh, we have, uh, um, oh, also, speaking um, of long episodes, <laughs> we do have one last thing here for messages from Earth, which is that one of the security guards of this episode is played by Vard, Von Armstrong, who Star Trek viewers will recognize as Admiral Maxwell Forrest from Star Trek Enterprise. Will they? Which, will they recognize that? <laughs> I don't know. He was in 18 episodes. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, which, Star Trek fans, will they? I mean,. I think you need to be more. I think you need to be more specific. The Star Trek Enterprise fans will recognize him. 
I mean, he was he played uh, he played like the uh, a Herogen war leader in Voyager. So okay. like mm. he was in at least a memorable episode. Right. There, there are a few there are a few other details that I like. So we've got the detail that Narn is written from right to left, and that Jakar is a lefty. Um, and I also I also really like the breakfast scene for one other reason, which is I like that they're showing the command staff like eating in the same mess at the same table as everybody else. Yeah. Um, we've had we've had another breakfast scene with um Sinclair rather than Sheridan but it's a it's a nice little like camaraderie de- detail mm-hmm. yeah these these are people that fight and live and work all together and it makes it, it's nice to see them that like they don't have a lot of other people that they can talk to about the stuff that they're going through so it makes sense that yeah like it's it's not like it's not like you know Captain Janeway hoarding her you know captain's dining room or something yeah before Neelix takes it over no comment. <laughs> Star Trek did Janeway dirty. They make they make Janeway out to be such a bitch. Yeah. It, well, part of that is because that Voyager had like five writers and none of them talked to each other because they hated each other so much. Right. Well, let's not turn this into a Voyager uh, podcast. <laughs> Welcome to our Star Trek no, Voyager I, podcast. No, I will resign because we cannot get, we cannot. Um, yeah. Who has who has point of no return? That would be me. Anna, get us out of here. All right. Engage. <laughs> no, no, it's got to be punch it. It's got to be the the, Sher- the Sheridan point down. <laughs> All right. Um, no, no, no. Or you could do you could do the you could do the pike hit it. Yeah, there there we go. So this is episode nine of season three, Point of No Return, uh, written by JMS and directed by Jim Johnston this time. So in the immediate aftermath of martial law being declared on Earth, the B-5 command staff are trying to figure out what's going on and what their next steps are. Not only has Clark declared martial law, he has dissolved the Senate and sent troops to apprehend its members. B-5's ally, General Haig, has left a message for Sheridan. Everything's gone to hell and you're on your own. He's attempting to organize a counter-strike, but is outnumbered, and the B-5 crew realize that if Haig is arrested, they'll be next. Facing down the imminent crisis, Garibaldi releases Jakar from his cell in order to free up resources, and Jakar says he may be able to provide help if he is just given a little time. Nightwatch seems to perhaps know more about the situation. Their local leader tells Zack to attend a meeting in a few hours and to bring a couple of extra caps for his PPG. That's not ominous. And indeed, the command staff soon get a briefing from a general who tells them that the political office has assigned security to Nightwatch and who tells Sheridan to Obey the chain of command. Nightwatch mobilizes and non-Nightwatch security line up to either join or turn in their resignations. Garibaldi, against Sheridan's advice and with shocking awareness of how people should respond to sudden takeover by a fascist organization, heads down to security. Well, that's because it's his fascist organization and he resents (laughs) anybody else tampering with his fascist organization. True, Sorry, not to interrupt, but- you know, any chance to dunk on Garibaldi. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was trying to be nice to him for once, but, you know. That is not a luxury he, he has afforded on the show. 
So Garibaldi heads down to security to confront the Night Watch. Zack also tries to stop him at the door, but is unsuccessful. Garibaldi storms in, uh, Night Watch refuses to budge, and Garibaldi is stripped of his position as chief of security. Sheridan receives the official order to declare martial law on B5 and delivers it to the station while looking decidedly green around the gills. His announcement plays across the station while Nightwatch subdues rioters in the Zocalo. Franklin speaks to Sheridan, offering an overly optimistic view on the situation, as well as of Haig's prospects, while reminding the captain that he can't disobey the chain of command. This prompts an idea. And Sheridan replays the general's message about Nightwatch, listening a lot more closely this time. Jakar, now freed, finds Talon guarding his quarters, armed with his trusty Malkatana. Jakar <laughs> attempts to explain his revelations to Talon. To save themselves, the Narn must be willing to give up their pride and vengeance and be willing to die for one another rather than for a grand purpose. He puts on his most kick-ass outfit and heads to CNC, where he whispers to Ivanova that he has an idea. <laughs> From there, he gathers a meeting of the station's Narn population and asks for their assistance. Zack heads back to his quarters, presumably tired out from arresting civilians in the Zocalo. When he arrives, he finds Garibaldi, Ivanova, and Jakar waiting for him inside, and Sheridan outside ushering him in. We next see him talking to the Nightwatch leader, revealing that the captain will be replacing Nightwatch members with a Narn security force. He'll be arriving on a ship very shortly. The Nightwatch leader gathers everyone in the docking bay, where the Narn ship will arrive, absolutely thrilled at the prospect of arresting all the Narns, plus the full command staff. Once everyone is contained, the doors slam shut and Sheridan speaks over the PA. The order for Nightwatch takeover was an illegal order, as it did not pass through the chain of command, but instead through the political office. The Nightwatch members are now themselves under arrest for conspiracy to mutiny, while the whole thing is sorted out. Meanwhile, the Narn community will be providing backup security forces. Nightwatch finally gives up, surrendering their weapons and submitting to house arrest. Jakar reveals his one condition for his aid, to be brought in to the secret alliance that he knows Sheridan and the others have been forming. Sheridan and Ivanova later gather in his office. They might have won the battle, but most of Haig's alliance of ships have been destroyed, and they fear that their success and continued freedom will be short-lived. Throughout all of this, uh, we in fact have a mystery guest B-plot. Veer is finally telling Londo precisely where he can shove his edits to Veer's report from Minbar when Veer is tragically interrupted by a message for Londo. Lady Morella, the wife of the late Centauri Emperor, will be stopping by the station for a visit. Londo tells Veer that everything must go perfectly and then exit his quarters to find the chaos and panic arising from Earth's declaration of martial law. Guess everything's not going perfectly, bud. Lady Morella arrives, and Londo reveals to her why he requested her visit. Londo wants her to use her powers as a seer to look into his destiny, to find out if she sees the same things unfolding there as he has, and if he has any hope of redemption. She agrees to this, and they continue with her tour of the station. This is interrupted by the announcement of martial law on the station, and Veer is struck on the head in the chaos and brought back to Londo's quarters. Lady Morella tends to him, and does indeed catch a glimpse of the future. 
She reveals to Londo that he has wasted two opportunities for redemption, but still has three remaining. He must save the eye that cannot see, must not kill the one who is already dead, and as a last opportunity, must surrender himself to his greatest fear, knowing that it will destroy him. She also reveals that he will be emperor, he cannot avoid that fate, and Veer too will be emperor. One of them will take the throne after the other is dead. A revelation that makes both men very nervous. My, my, my reaction initially to finding out that Veer would become emperor was complete unrestrained glee. I think mine was a lot like Veer's reaction to it, which was disbelieving nervous laughter. <laughs> which is his reaction is so good yeah he's like oh so funny you're joshing me yeah exactly it's god bless veer such a good character he's fantastic yeah it's really good i fucking love lady morella and i wish that she had uh come back more on this yeah episode the, the thing i didn't mention is that lady morella is played by majel barrett yeah and amazingly yeah it's absolutely outstanding i love that in the lurker's guide page for this episode there is an excerpt of a post that jms put up on a star trek usenet page where he's uh unlike his usual star trek rants is positively hmm, do i want hmm, i don't know let's just say he's shining them on a little bit as opposed to uh telling them to fuck off telling them look 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 we've got you know We've got Majel Barrett and we've got Walter Koenig. We've got Walter Koenig. Like we got Harlan Ellison over here. Like they put, they all say very nice things about our show. You should come watch us. And I have to imagine that the ratings were uh, <laughs> struggling very slightly that in the, in that episode. So he felt the need to like go drum up some nerds to come over and watch it or something. Yeah. I think he describes it as like a peace offering. <laughs> Well, and he's like, my problems with Star Trek are all with Paramount, not with you guys. Yeah. No, we we love you. We just hate Paramount. Yeah. Whatever, man. I'm sure that they believe that after seeing your post about dumping on the episodes uh, that, that, you, that, that would not have been nominated for a Hugo if it weren't for you. <laughs> you dick bag. So I, I do. I do think that like. That the that Clark des- just decided like oh I could sign an executive order dissolving the Senate feels very Emperor Palpatine. This episode makes me very viscerally uncomfortable in the wake of January sixth. Yeah, this whole show is awkwardly like it's one of those shows where there's like a lot of this stuff is supposed to be like science fiction, but now you look at it and you're like. Oh, <sighs> too, too real, too real. As a student of history, there is never that, you know, dictators do not get removed from office by investigations of their crimes. So I, I was sort of like, you know, having watched this before, like, you know, when I watched this episode before, didn't really change my outlook on them, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Like it. You can absolutely see what's happening, but it's it's just a lot more uncomfortable for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. With the 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 additional kind of emotional component. Yeah, there's man, there's a lot in this episode. This is one of those. <laughs> this is one of those episodes that is has some really great moments. I 
love that Zach's plot in this episode is everyone thinks he's dumb. Like that's his plot is the Nightwatch people thinks think he's a stooge that will do whatever they tell him to. And the command staff think he's a stooge that will do whatever they tell him to do. And the only reason they're right is because he's marginally more loyal to Garibaldi than he is afraid of Nightwatch. And it's there there's such a fake out too when when he goes to the Nightwatch leader yeah. and is like, "Man, I don't know how to tell you this, but like they're bringing in fucking Narns." Yeah. Well, and then And you're like, "Oh, yeah. he's selling them out." Yeah. The whole like selling a lie with the truth thing is very good there. Yeah. I love that Talon comes back. I love our our mall our mall ninja Narn. He's the best. I really, I really, really love Talon, and I'm bummed that we don't get much more of him. I wish, I wish we had gotten more of him. I wish that he like Natoth is gone for. I forget exactly why. Whether it's that you know their fourth actress for the role decided that she was done with it, yeah, or whatever. But I really wish that. Talon had become Jakar's new second in command. Yeah. That would have been a joy. I agree. I I'm I'm I was bummed that he did not stick around. So And then and then he and uh Sheridan could have had their like bromance on the side. I would have loved to have kept writing that into these summaries. I really would have. This is an episode that the best part of this episode is seeing Nightwatch get its comeuppance for me. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. boy, those fascist fuck rags, you really you really enjoy that moment where the door drops down on them and that blonde motherfucker is just standing there with his jaw hanging down like a oh, what? They don't even give him a name, but he's the most punchable. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Yeah, he's he's also in that category of like if you were going to cast a Nazi, it yeah. would be this guy. Yeah, if literally the only difference the only the only thing keeping him from looking like a straight up Nazi is a different uniform and some hair gel. Like, yeah. Overall, though, this is for such a portentous episode. It's an episode that doesn't hit as hard as the ones on either side of it for me. Yeah, this this is sort of the it's it's the middle point of this. It's the rising tension. Yeah. It's like this is building up to what we're going to be getting next episode in Separate Dreams. Like. This is, uh, for this, this is the, the important part of this is this is the turning point in how far Sheridan is willing to go. Because he's willing to read out the order for martial law and stomach it. He He's like, we can wait this out. We can make, we can trust the Seta. And then it, but eventually he flips and realizes, no, we've got to take this into our own hands. Yeah. Yeah. And. That that is the part where it is instead of supporting and playing within the rules, it is time. It, like Sheridan recognized that it is the time for direct action. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting because it's that scene with Sheridan and Franklin where Sheridan's read out the order and Franklin's in the in the office being like, "Hey, buddy, it's not it's not so bad. All of this will blow over," and it's it's sort of. Franklin is saying what Sheridan has been saying the whole episode and hearing it coming back at him. It's like, no, no. When you realize Franklin is agreeing with your policies. (laughs) Yeah, when you hear hear something stupid, 
and it's coming out of a stupid face, you realize how stupid it is. Right, right. Like hearing hearing something come out of somebody else's mouth yeah. sometimes makes you reassess. Man, I didn't help realize how dumb I sounded until it came out of that butthead's face. <laughs> God, I hate Franklin. I just hate him so much. I don't know. Like, I can get, take a guess why they keep having him be like the just having the worst opinion on everything. I could take a guess. I don't is, think is this a racist thing? I think it is. Oh man. Don't I, don't like, take I, this I, away like, from this me. Is, no, just I, stop talking. I, don't I, take this away from me. Let me hate Franklin <laughs> for all the valid reasons I hate him. Don't don't make me feel bad about hating him. I I am only saying that it just like it feels like he gets an obscene amount of like or like he he is always put on the wrong side of things. <laughs> Unless it is like a direct I hate you so much right now. Issue, I hate you so much right side. now. I mm. I'm sorry. I don't want to take this from you. But I'm just saying there's a pattern here. Yeah, the pattern is shut yeah. up. Yeah. Don't take this from me. Why would you do that? Make me feel bad for hating someone who sucks as much as he sucks. I'm just saying, the one character played by an actor of color on the show. Yep. That's not true. There are a number of people who don't have or names the, on this the, show. The recurring. The recurring. <laughs> uh, it, we'll, we'll get to it in Ceremonies of Light and Darkness, but, well, we get a lot of non-Anglo names in the depth toll. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, they're perfectly happy to, to kill people. So I think one of my favorite bits about this episode is, in fact, the B plot that, you know, the the A plot is very good. But I I mean, everybody knows here that I'm a sucker for all the Centauri prophecy shit. And this is like absolutely my bag because we have Majel Barrett yeah. um, giving us Centauri prophecy shit. Um, and also and also mm-hmm. Veer finally standing up to Lando and being like, you know what? You can take these edits and fucking shove them where the sun don't shine. Yeah. Which is a joy to behold. And he's like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to my quarters. I'm going to sleep. And we will try this again tomorrow. It's so good. But the the whole thing with Lady Merla, I really find really interesting because it makes me wonder a lot about the emperor that you know the emperor coming to b5 says that you know this is his last chance for redemption to you know, make peace with the narn and this is his wife who is telling londo that he has a finite number of chances for redemption and it makes me wonder whether you know emperor taran had the same sort of like paths laid out to him by his wife yeah it's great foreshadowing. There's some great shots, like when when they're speaking and we're looking into a mirror rather than looking at them head on. And it's she's fantastic. I wish that she'd come back. Yeah, same. She's really, really good. Uh, the the other thing is, you know, as we watch, uh, Justin, you'll get to uh, keep an eye out for those those three. Uh, chunks of yeah. prophecy. Um, and also there's the question of what are the two chances that Lando, Lando has already fucked up? Yeah, because I mean, it could be a lot of things, man. It could be a lot of could things. Be a lot of things. Could be, could be the, the original eye, which was our, our MacGuffin from season one. Yeah, like one make, the, making the that first alliance with Morden. Yeah, I think, I think that's um, a safe bet for one of them. The Emperor. The Emperor. Yeah. yeah. 
And it's gonna be it's uh, yeah, it, it, like those are the two that like immediately jump to mind. Is like those are the most and it, and it could have also been you know having the having the shadows take the role that they did in specifically yeah. the downfall it, of Narn. Yeah, encouraging genocide feels like yeah feels like something that could have maybe have been one of them. Just throwing that out there. I and mean, I think I think I think it's just like those two like the like the eye and Emperor Turon like like starting the world Narn. I think those are two more pivotal points that are yeah. once you go down that road you stop like I, I think it's like with, with the with the war with Narn stopping the war is more important because once that war started with the, the shadows on their side we know how that's going to end. Yeah. 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 It's not it's not like it's not like Londa was going to be able to stop Nards from dying once. Yeah. Once. Well, as demonstrated by the fact that he did he does try to stop it. He cancels his deal with the shadows and poisons Rifa and like tries to like get in there and like put a break on the shadow involvement and what happens? Nothing. They still make yeah. their deal like it's way too late for that is way too late like that boulder is picking up speed and hurtling downhill and like it's too late yeah Make, making that first alliance and then starting the war are i think i think i think we've got it yeah. those are the two that would be my feeling mm-hmm. yeah talon has a great line um as jakar is speaking with him and being mysterious um <laughs> Talon has that line about, it, well, all answers are replies, not all replies are answers. <laughs> that is such yeah. a good line. I love that line because it's such a good line to have in your pocket when you live in a universe with the Minbari. <laughs> God, yeah. It's the such the a delivery is line. also stellar. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's fantastic. I love that line an awful lot. It's such a fuck you in like the most respectful way possible. My other favorite line from this episode, I want to make sure that I get the, uh, Londo says, I need to see what is before me, if I should escape it or embrace it, if there is any longer a choice. And Morello's response is, there is always choice. We say that there is no choice, only to comfort ourselves with the decision we have already made. Yep. And I, that is, a, that is a big one that I'm like, that it's, it's a very good line. Yeah. Her, her line about greatness is also fantastic. It was the it was the line about how greatness is rarely which all this pain has entered. I was there when he left us. He was a great man. Yes. Yes he was. The greatness is never appreciated in youth, called pride in midlife, dismissed in old age and reconsidered in death. Because we cannot tolerate greatness in our midst we do all we can to destroy it this place has become a memorial to his unfinished work that's a heavy quote yeah yeah that that is somebody on lurkers asked if that was a quote about roddenberry i saw that andreas katsoulis and veer's actor in the scene after the big reveal the two of them just sitting on the fucking couch together. Oh, they're yeah. just like, they're just yeah, like, yeah. You you want you want to get some food? You hungry? No, I'm good. I, I made your favorite your favorite spoo. I'll Arthurian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wasn't wasn't your ship leaving? 
Oh, that's tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow. Like, the, the little hand gesture he makes when he says, oh, yeah, it's leaving tomorrow. It's just, it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So next time we are going to be watching episodes 10 and 11 of season three, uh, Severed Dreams and Ceremonies of Light and Darkness. Until next time, I am the Senate. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.